Hi, I'm Eaton. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. Show. We are still in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. New Mexico Part 2. Land of Enchantment. Land of Enchantment. I don't know what my cat was trying to do just there, but he like freaked out and knocked a bunch of stuff over. I was wondering what that was. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just the cat. He's very excited about the Land of Enchantment. He is, he is. So Land of Enchantment has some crazy, weird laws that I did not expect. Is one of them forgetting how to do your intro? Because after you said we're recording, my mind just went blank and I was like, what do I say? (laughs) That's just called being rusty. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's dive into the weird laws, Eden, and I'm going to go big with the first one. All right. In New Mexico, men can go naked as long as their genitals are covered. So loincloths totally work. That's not really naked then, is it? I guess you're right. It's not truly naked. It's just scantily clad. Yeah. So, I mean, like, the red hot chili peppers would be, like, really at home here, which is the cock sock and (laughs) nothing else. (laughs) The cock sock. Well, I mean, call it what it is. I mean, I'm all for accuracy. (laughs) And, uh, of course, not to be left out, it's also completely legal for women to go topless in New Mexico as long as their nipples aren't visible. Okay, you hear that, goth girls who like to go to clubs and put the electrical tape over your nips? This is the state for you. (laughs) Um, On the flip side, there are some laws that could impact your naked romp or semi-naked romp, I guess. Oh, come on. Every nudist listening to this was so excited to go to New Mexico, and now you're (laughs) going to ruin all their fun. (laughs) Well, they can still go. They just need to be mindful of how well-groomed they are. Oh. In Carrizozo, New Mexico, women are banned from being unshaven in public. So no hairy legs, no hairy armpits. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I guess they had a problem. I don't know. Where these women like shot under the pretense that they were werewolves or. (laughs) It's a Sasquatch. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Uh, So there is this weird law. It's actually a mandate. And there were some concerns about um, how the Shakespeare play Romeo and Juliet could be negatively impacting New Mexican teens. So Okay. Strictly New Mexican teens, though, like no one else. Yes, All just, right. just in the state. It was just state officials in New Mexico being very concerned about Romeo and Juliet. I probably blame the hot chemistry between Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, but... Oh, yes. The most inaccurate version, movie version of that story. (laughs) Wonderful. Exactly. Well, I guess at some point, the officials in New Mexico mandated that 400 sexually explicit words would be removed from the play Romeo and Juliet as it was presented in public schools. Okay. I didn't think there were that many sexually explicit words in that play, but I could be wrong. I haven't read it in a really long time. 
I just remember in school, I think it was eighth grade when we did Romeo and Juliet, we watched the, I want to say it was the 1960s version. Oh, yeah. With Olivia Hussey. Yep. The teacher during the scene where they're in bed together put uh, like construction paper over the screen so we couldn't see them in bed together. (laughs) They weren't even naked, mind you, but... You know, she just didn't want to. It wanna... was a Christian school, so yeah, she didn't want to overstimulate your your teenage libido. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> um, so I guess that prudishness does not extend to adults in New Mexico, because in Carlsbad, it's totally okay for a couple to have sex in a parked vehicle during their lunch break, provided. They have covered the windows in their automobile to prevent others from peeking in and seeing them do the nasty. Well, isn't that half the fun of doing it in the car, though? I mean... I mean, some people would argue it is. (laughs) I mean, exhibitionism for the win. (laughs) Not me personally, believe me. I don't even want to see myself naked. So, hey, there's that. Yeah, I don't know why there's so much concern about nudity and public fornication and shakespeare in new mexico but hey man nudity public fornication and shakespeare wow (laughs) Uh, speaking of automobiles it is against the law for women to pump their own gas or change a flat tire whoa okay so misogyny for the win Yeah, I would definitely say this is a weird law that I'm sure lots of women in New Mexico have broken without even knowing it. Oh, yeah. But apparently they instituted this in the early 20th century when automobiles were becoming more prevalent with the expectation that men would step up and offer to pump gas and change tires for the ladies. Who are obviously too delicate to know how to do those things for themselves. Exactly. They don't want to break a nail. (laughs) um some other weird laws in new mexico um this one made me very much cackle when i read it the first time uh in new mexico it is illegal for quote unquote idiots to vote okay and i mean idiot is technically a term that is actually like on stuff like the um the IQ tests. Mm-hmm, but it's super outdated, like right? So oh yeah, very outdated. Because like idiot and moron and all those, that's where that comes from. It's interesting because I didn't find any additional qualifications around what constitutes an idiot in New Mexico. So mm. so there's that. These are definitely some laws, Nicole. Yeah, they're <laughs> definitely weird. Um and the last one I have for you, I think it's kind of hilarious because it's all about state pride. In New Mexico, you can be charged with a petty misdemeanor if you improperly use the official national or state anthem. How would you misuse it exactly? And, and therein lies the weirdness of this law. The phrasing is really confusing. But it sounds like you basically have to completely perform the songs and perform them separately. So you can't do like a medley of Star Spangled Banner and Oh Fair New Mexico, which is the New Mexico State Anthem. 
weird. <laughs> okay. And those are some of the weird laws I've found in New Mexico. They were certainly very weird. I mean, I feel like they've gotten tamer since we've gotten out west, but these <laughs> ones, weird as fuck. Just when you thought it was less crazy in the west. Yes. Just when you thought it was safe to go into the desert. <laughs> well, with all those wonderful laws out of the way, do you have a story for us, Nicole? I do. I do. And as I mentioned before we started recording, this one's a little bit of a slow burn, so I hope you bear with me. I watched Bloodline. I can handle anything. <laughs> that is like the definition of a slow burn, that show. Uh, it was so dull, and I'm just like, Linda Cardellini and Kyle Chandler, you're my only reason for watching this. Let's just keep going. Okay, fine. So today we are heading to Cliff, New Mexico. Cliff is a very small town of only about 300 residents within a 10 square mile area. Cliff is located in Grant County, New Mexico. Grant County, which is in the southwestern corner of the state, is also pretty sparsely populated. It has a population of 27,000 residents spread out over almost 4,000 miles in the county. Cliff is one of 22 census-designated places within Grant County and was founded on the Gila River Valley in 1884. Because of its size and relatively close proximity to Silver City, the county seat, not a whole lot happens in Cliff except for the annual Grant County Fair. Uh, the fair is held each September at the adjoining fairgrounds next to Cliff High School. The Grant County Fair features 4-H and Future Farmers of America livestock shows and exhibitions, along with food, craft, and art vendors, community dances, a baking contest, and a, quote, cowboy church on Sunday. Cowboy church. Oh, right. How is it different from regular church? They just go yeehaw instead of amen? Possibly. And you have to wear your 10-gallon hat, I guess. Oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, you got to wear that Sunday hat. And if... It's a cowboy church. I would assume it would be a 10-gallon hat. Yeah, I just I just think 10-gallon hats and hair the, as high as the eye can see. <laughs> well, I mean, this isn't Texas, but it's close enough. So <laughs> the higher the hair, the closer you are to God. Exactly. Uh, the quiet rural life in Cliff is exactly what attracted the subjects of my story today, Jerry and Rita Alter, who moved to the area in the 1970s. The Alters had met and fallen deeply in love in 1955 or possibly 1956 at a hotel in the Catskill Mountains. Jerry was playing clarinet in the hotel jazz band that summer, and Rita had planned on earning some extra cash as a waitress during the Catskills' busy tourist season. But when Rita made it to the Catskills, she discovered that there weren't any more jobs available at the hotel. So she went to a cafe to mull over her predicament, and that's where she met Jerry. The two quickly struck up a conversation and discovered they had a shared love of music, art, and travel. The two started dating and were married a year later. They spent the next decade or so living in New York City. Jerry worked as a professional musician and as a band teacher in the city public schools. Rita, meanwhile pursued a career in the New York public school system as a speech pathologist. 
They had two children together, and they spent their summers traveling to different places around the world. By the early 1970s, Jerry and Rita decided to, quote, get out of the rat race and find someplace quieter and cheaper to live than New York City. Which is pretty much anywhere. Pretty much anywhere. That's true. <laughs> Love New York, but would not want to live there. So I can only imagine how much smaller the town of Cliff, New Mexico was back in 1973 when Jerry decided that this was the perfect place to get away from it all. And he purchased 20 acres within Cliff. Jerry retired at the tender age of 43 and the couple moved out to a trailer on the property. Over the next... I retire at the tender age of 43 because that sounds awesome. I was like, he lived his life right if he's retiring at 43. Yeah. <laughs> Over the next couple of years, while the couple lived in the trailer, Jerry drew up the blueprints and hired contractors to build this amazing ranch-style house atop this mesa on their property. Rita, meanwhile, continued her career as a speech pathologist for the local Silver Consolidated School District. By 1977, the house was complete. It included a large pool, and an extensive garden with statues of Jerry's favorite composers nestled in nooks and crannies, or alcoves, if you will, in the garden. According to friends and family, the altars were quiet, but friendly people who mostly kept to themselves and spent their time pursuing their passions. Jerry spent most of his time painting, filling the house with studies of Matisse and other modern masters. And he enjoyed writing. Over the course of his retirement, Jerry self-published three books. As the years pass, the couple also continued to travel the world during Rita's summer breaks, eventually visiting over 140 countries and capturing their trips in thousands of photographs and slides. Now, this quiet, comfortable life the altars carved out for themselves lasted until Jerry passed away at age 81, in 2012. Five years later, Rita, who was also 81, died and left her estate to her nephew, a man named Ron Roseman. As Ron started to clear out his aunt and uncle's house, he realized that after sorting through their personal keepsakes, old love letters, and photos, he needed to bring someone in who could help sell the assortment of paintings and collectibles Jerry and Rita had amassed from their travels. So Ron hired local Silver City antiques dealer David Van Ocker to appraise the contents of the Atler's three-bedroom, 20-acre estate. Van Ocker began hauling the mid-century modern furniture and other collectibles out of the house room by room. As he reached the master bedroom, he was surprised to see, behind the door, a large abstract painting of a female figure. It was provocative, wild. The colors were ochre, black, burnt sienna, and this bright turquoise. At first he thought it was a print, but then when he got closer to it, he realized it was a canvas, although it wasn't in the best condition. The paint was a little wavy and cracked. It was also in a cheap gold frame. He also saw that when the bedroom door was open, even if only halfway, it concealed the painting, which he thought was a little odd. And there was evidence that 
the painting was valued. There was a homemade doorstop, a single bolt attached to the baseboard, which protected the painting from being bumped if the door was opened. According to Van Ocker, quote, It was odd how it had been hung in such a way that it would be concealed from sight. But then there were other things hung in odd ways in the house, too. So many paintings crammed in the rear hallway and in the bathroom, so I didn't think too much of it. End quote. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once the house was empty, Van Ocker offered Ron Roseman $2,000 for the estate. Roseman agreed, and Van Ocker hauled the contents of the house to his showroom in Silver City. He placed a large, abstract painting of the woman in the front window. Only a few days later, a local artist noticed the painting and its signature. It was signed, De Kooning. And he also noticed, as he got closer to it, that this might actually be a real painting by modern master William de Kooning. The local artist offered Van Ocker $200,000 for the painting. However, Van Ocker hesitated and decided he should investigate this painting a little bit more closely before agreeing to sell it. Even though he didn't find any Provence or papers that provided history on the painting at the altar's house, he did dig into the work of William de Kooning. Eden, are you familiar with de Kooning at all? Not in the least. So William de Kooning... I don't know art very well, so... Mm. William de Kooning's a pretty popular 20th century artist. He's this Dutch-American artist who painted in a style that you could probably best describe as abstract expressionism. Uh, You'll also see it called action painting. He was part of this larger group of artists who operated in New York City in the mid to early 20th century. They became known as the New York School. Some of the other painters from this group that you might have heard of are people like Jackson Pollock, Ashley Gorky, and Marth Ruthko. Okay, I'm just going to say something. Mm-hmm. I think that modern art is complete and total bullshit. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I wanted to see if this guy maybe could change my mind on that. So I just Googled him and I am looking through and it's literally globs of paint on a canvas with no rhyme or reason, uh, which I'm sure, you know, describes the deep void within his soul or it's a comment on, um, you know, uh, human rights or whatever, you know, whatever he's pretending it is. But (laughs) literally, like, my two-year-old cousin could do this shit. That's why it's quote-unquote action painting. They took action without any thought. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, De Kooning in particular was really well known for the series of studies he did of women. So these like highly abstract and sometimes you could argue maybe a little bit obscene, but they're so abstract it's hard to tell. Studies of women. Oh, this one has boobs. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. It looks like a, I want to say, weird, horny grandma who's <laughs> taking off her top, but it's hard to tell because there's so much other crap going on, like squigglies and lots of colors. Yeah. But yeah. So you- oh, why does she have two mouths? I'm going to stop looking. <laughs> so you have a general gist of William de Kooning's style now. Um, yes, and I won't be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like I said, he he became one of the best known artists in the 20th centuries for this type of abstract expressionism. I would probably say 
him, Pollock, Gorky, and Rothko are probably the best known. Um, and his prominence in the art world made it really easy for David Van Ocker to discover that the painting he had in his shop was indeed a de Kooning work. A de Kooning work that had been stolen in a brazen daytime 1985 theft from the University Whoa. of Arizona. Okay. The abstract painting discovered behind Jerry and Rita Alter's bedroom door was a 1955 work by de Kooning called Woman Ochre. It was given to the University of Arizona Museum of Art in 1958 by the original owner. The painting was on display in the museum until the day after Thanksgiving in 1985. On that day, a mustachioed man and a woman with her hair in a handkerchief, both wearing sunglasses, slipped into the University of Arizona Art Museum behind an entering employee. Even though it was a pretty temperate day in Tucson, both wore overcoats. While the woman distracted the guard on the stairwell with questions about a painting, the man proceeded upstairs. A few minutes later, he dashed down the stairs, and the couples left in such a rush that the guard became suspicious. Upon entering the second floor gallery, the guard was horrified to discover that someone had cut de Kooning's woman ochre right out of its frame. Before the museum, as art thieves do, as as art thieves are known to do. Before museum workers could stop them, the pair was already gone in an automobile that sped off. Uh, witnesses described it as a rust-colored hatchback with black louvers over the back window. Black what? Louvers. What the heck is that? You usually see them in like older cars from like the seventies and eighties. They're like those black slats on the back of a hatchback. Oh, okay, okay. I know what you're talking about. So pretty distinct, uh, rust-colored hatchback. The police sketch artist was able to produce images based off of eyewitness testimony. And they released him to the public all around Tucson. And there were lots of rumors and tips were received, but ultimately the the case remained unsolved and went cold. It's technically still open to this day. Hmm. Now, the altar's friends and family, when they learned about this painting, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how Jerry and Rita had come to have Ochre Woman in their possession. Neither their adult children nor their nephew, Ron Roseman, knew exactly how the altars ended up with the painting. Although Ron doesn't think his congenial aunt and uncle stole the painting, he thinks it's more likely that the couple purchased the painting without knowing its origin. Others, however, including the FBI, have found some striking correlations between the 1985 theft suspects and the altars. First, there's the police sketches based on eyewitness accounts. They definitely bear more than a passing resemblance when compared to photos of Jerry and Rita during the mid-1980s. Let me send you some, because I'm curious to see if you see it too. Okay. So here is the sketch, sketches based on the witness accounts from the robbery. And here is a picture of Rita and Jerry on vacation from the 80s. 
Okay. I could see it. You can picture Jerry with a mustache and like he's a dead ringer, I think, for the for the male yeah. suspect. Yeah, I mean Jerry definitely looks more like the drawing than than his wife does. But yeah, I could definitely see him being being that guy. The glasses are spot on. Mm -hmm. And the jawline, I think, is very yeah. distinct, too. So that's the first piece of evidence that raised some eyebrows. The second was that the altars were in Tucson during Thanksgiving 1985 to visit their son. And that's when it went missing, right? Exactly. Mm. Um, this was confirmed by family photos and by the altar's day planner, they would, out of habit, take pretty meticulous notes in their day planner about what they ate, where they went, the medications they had, that sort of stuff. Yet, oddly enough, Thanksgiving 1985 is mysteriously blank in a planner that is otherwise completely filled in. Huh, okay. that That's not at all suspicious. Mm -mm. In another coincidence, the altar's owned two matching hatchbacks in the 1980s. One was blue and one was maroon colored. Both of them had black louvers over their rear windows. Okay. This is not looking so great for them. Mm -mm. Investigators also began to question how the couple could afford their large custom built home with a huge swimming pool and extensive gardens. And they also- That's true wondered how they could keep traveling the world as two retired school teachers. At first, I just thought, like, you know, well, they lived in New York. They're making that good New York money. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, that against the cost of living in New York, which would take up most of that money. So, yeah, how did he afford this, like, 20-acre place, which I don't even know how you take care of that many acres. <laughs> um, and, yeah, how do you afford to retire at 43? Exactly. Yeah. I was in the same boat, too, because I'm like, I can see how moving to New York or moving from New York to New Mexico could really stretch your dollars further. Oh, yeah. But that also doesn't explain the bank account that Rita left after she died. It had over one million dollars in it. Whoa. Yeah. OK. And she was a teacher, you said, right? Yep. OK, well. They don't make that much. Exactly. I can't fathom how they could save that much money and continue to live a very comfortable lifestyle with presumably little or no pension from Jerry's teaching jobs. Like you don't if get it your... turns out not to be that they did stuff that was illegal. Please tell me their secrets because <laughs> I want to live this life. <laughs> right. It's like I know people who like are technically millionaires, but they tend to be people who are very frugal, not yep, people like exactly building custom homes and like traveling all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's all about knowing how to save money. Mm-hmm. Like, the weird thing is, like, remember, Jerry retired at, like, 43? Yeah. And there's no record of him ever working when they were in New Mexico. So he probably didn't even collect a pension. And if he did, it probably wasn't that big. And then they just have Rita's, like, modest salary as a speech yeah. pathologist. Um, I read some speculation that maybe they were early investors in something like Microsoft, but there's no evidence that they owned any kind of stock or investments. And there's paper trails with that kind of thing. Exactly. So. Now, the last coincidence that really makes me wonder 
if the altars were involved in the theft of the de Kooning painting and possibly other illegal activities is from a collection of short stories that Jerry published shortly before he died. Oh, that's right. He published, he self-published books. I Mm -hmm. forgot about that. So in 2011, he self-published a collection of short stories. In the preface, Jerry called the stories, quote, an amalgamation of actuality and fantasy, end quote. Well, way to be vague. I know, way to be vague, but also hinting. It, it reminds me of those terrible movies where it's like, based on a true story. and it, Oh, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was based on Ed Gein, but had nothing to do with Ed Gein. But their big tag was, it's based on a true story. Exactly. It's like, a murder happens at one point sometime near this place. And it's kind of like this. It's based on a true story. Just like Fargo is based on a true story, but it had nothing to do with Helicraft's murder <laughs> other than the wood chipper thing. Which is disappointing because the Helicraft yeah. story is nuts. Yeah, it is. So in this collection of short stories, um, none of them are like amazing literary masterpieces, but one story definitely jumps out in retrospect. The story is called Eye of the Jaguar. And it's about the security guard named Lou who works at an art museum. One day, a middle-aged woman and her 14-year-old granddaughter show up. The woman asks Lou about the history of a prized emerald on display. Then, six months later, the woman and her granddaughter return, then leave in a rush. Curious, Lou reinspects the room and realizes the emerald's gone. Running to the door, he sees the pair speeding away and runs out to stop them. The woman floors the accelerator and runs Lou down, killing him. The two speed off, leaving behind, quote, absolutely no clues which police could use to even begin to search for them, exclamation point, end quote. Hmm. And Jerry ends the fictional tale with a description of the emerald sitting in an empty room. The last lines of the story are, quote, and two pairs of eyes exclusively are there to see it. End quote. Huh. Sounds a lot like somebody who may have stolen a painting and hidden it behind their master bedroom door so just he and his lady love could look at it. Yeah, but okay, so here's here's my thing. Mm-hmm. So when he was selling off like all that shit and he knew that painting was in there. Why let everything go for such a measly sum of money? Well, remember, it wasn't Jerry or Rita who were selling off the estate. It was their nephew. Oh, oh, that's right. Never mind. And he okay. had, yeah, he had no idea. The plot hole has been closed. <laughs> so when it comes down to it, we're never going to know if it was actually Jer- Jerry and Rita who stole this decooning. Most of the circumstantial evidence points to yes. And it does seem like given their travels around the world, they may have been involved in other illegal activity. And this was just maybe the score they kept. Um, Some of the speculation I came across on Reddit and whatnot noted that when Jerry was painting back in New York, they actually lived only a few blocks from de Kooning. So perhaps it was some sort of artist envy that made him like steal the painting and keep it. Who knows? Well, there's a new layer. Mm -hmm. 
Huh. Uh, the woman ogre has since been returned to the University of Arizona Art Museum. And it has been restored from the damage that occurred from being cut out of the frame and presumably rolled up and shoved under Jerry's coat when they made their getaway. Other than that, the real mystery remains is who exactly were Jerry and Rita Alter and what other crimes are we never going to know about? That is very true because, I mean, it seems like they... I don't want to say 100% that they did it, but like 99% sure that they did it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting, too, because the FBI has been holding this case open. So they're still clearly investigating things. But it makes you wonder if they're truly investigating the case or just looking for, for possible cases that are similar. That's true. Yeah. But I mean, if they still have it open, then it makes me think that Maybe they have other leads. Could be. But one other mysterious thing is that uh, no one has been able to locate Jerry and Rita's adult children, or at least reporters haven't been able to locate them. So, oh, really? Yeah. So there's a lot of mysteries surrounding like the actual Alter family, and I also thought it was interesting learning that they had two kids, but it was their nephew who was like the executor of their estate. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, there's a, lo- a lot of mystery around this case, and I just thought it was so freaking fascinating that these people basically like lived under the radar and had a great life together um, and never got caught. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you go that long with not being caught? I wonder. I guess he just especially when you retire at such an early age and don't have a job and you know <laughs> your regular life have, has you making nowhere near as much money as you apparently have. Right? And it's kind of crazy because if you think about it like at, in the end like I think some of the reason Jerry wrote that collection of short stories especially the Eye of the Jaguar was because he did want to kind of brag about it a little bit. Oh, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you accomplish something and get away with it for so long, there's always going to be that part of you that wants to be like, hey, want to know what I did? Want to know what I did? Yes. Hey. Like, look what I did. Look what I can do. <laughs> Stuart. Stuart. So that is my true crime for New Mexico. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, my sources were Wikipedia, Washington Post, New York Times, tabletmagazine.com. Artnet News and Getty.edu. Thank you for that, Nicole. That was very interesting. Um, yeah, I definitely think that they have a lot of splaining to do. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they won't be able to splain. I just feel like I need to rethink my retirement plans and perhaps I'll become an international right. art thief. Step one steal painting. <laughs> Step two question mark. Step three retire. Yeah. At 43, so we don't have long to get on this. We need to go now. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll take a short break, and then we can come back for some news and your paranormal story. And while we take our break, we'll be deciding how we are going to steal those works of art, get away with it, and retire early. (laughs) I mean, no, nothing of the sort. What what, what did you hear? I I don't know. I I heard nothing. I know nothing. 
listeners, you've heard nothing. Goodbye. <laughs> and we're back. Welcome back. So, my new story is kind of cool because it um it kind of goes with uh, the theme of our podcast here. And it is from uh, ifuckinglovescience.com. Oh, I, I fucking love that website. Exactly. And the headline is, Japan's killing stone, said to contain a chaotic demon for a thousand years, splits in half. Wait, what? Killing stone? Yes. So, I mean, this kind of goes with your, your story from, from our last episode. With all of the uh, trying to keep the demons down and contained. I suppose it does. <laughs> In case 2022 didn't have enough terrible omens already, an ancient legend from Japanese culture has reared its dreaded head. The Sesoseki Killing Stone, said to seal the spirit of a vengeful demon from the outside world, has split in half. A large volcanic rock said to immediately kill anyone that touches it, the Sesoseki Stone, is deeply embedded in Japanese mythology and is said to be the transformed corpse of the mythological Tamamo no Mei. Tamamo no Mei was supposedly a beautiful woman whose spirit was possessed by a nine-tailed fox or kitsune, a demon spirit known for trickery and deception using disguise. Known to answer any questions asked of her, Tamamo no Mei was part of a plot to seduce and kill Emperor Toba, who fell sick as a result. The fox spirit was exposed and hunted by two mythological warriors, and the spirit embedded itself into the Sesoseki stone as a last resort, which released a poisonous gas that killed anyone who touched it. The spirit supposedly haunted the rock, which was registered as a local historical site in 1957, hmm. until a Buddhist priest performed rituals to finally make the spirit rest. Now, it has been reported that the Killing Stone is split in two, likely as a result of natural erosion. According to the Guardian, the volcanic rock had been observed with cracks in several years ago, likely allowing water in, which helped erode it from the inside. That hasn't stopped superstitions running wild, with tourists that have flocked to the demonic rock saying they, quote, feel like they have seen something they shouldn't. Can't say we blame them with how this year is going already. An evil fox demon running rampant would be par for the course. Wow. That's so... So that's nutty. That is nutty. But I feel like there is this universal sort of demon in a rock or monster in a rock thing that happens across cultures you know yeah um so i feel like it would be pretty freaking weird to visit like the demon rock and it's split open you're like uh-oh like what did i do now <laughs> like i was hoping this year would get better right nope fooled again well, thanks for that weird news story, Eden. Absolutely. What's on deck for your paranormal tale today? Well, if I could get to it, because Microsoft Teams decided to open and is in the way of my folder. Surprise! Um, I actually have a few stories. Oh. So, my story for this week takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Albuquerque is the most populous city in New Mexico, with 564,559 people calling the city home, which also makes it the 32nd most populous city in the United States and the fourth largest city in all the Southwest. It was named after the Viceroy of New Spain and was founded in 1706 by Francisco Cuervo y Valdez and was called La Villa de Albuquerque. Okay. It's also the county seat of Bernalillo County. It's home to a lot of big names, such as Netflix. Really? I didn't know that. Yep. I knew Microsoft. And, yep. And was the founding location of Microsoft. So you are right on that money. It has a huge Hispanic and Latino population, making up nearly half the city. Wow. It's home to a rich culture and history with plenty of fun places to learn and explore, such as the Albuquerque Museum, New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, uh, Sunday Peak Ski Area, uh, Tingley Coliseum, and Albuquerque Biological Park, among others, which I have no idea what a biological park is, but apparently it is one-stop shopping for everything natural, it seems. (laughs) There's an aquarium there, a botanical garden, a zoo, you name it. It even has a beach. Wow. The most interesting part of this city, however, has to be Old Town, the original town site, which I will be taking you on a haunted tour of today. Nice. So without further ado, I will dive into our first location, the Chemo Theater. The Chemo Theater is on the corner of Central Avenue and 5th Street. It was built in 1927 and created by Oresti Bakenchi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name right. And his wife, Maria. The building is pretty cool as it was created in the Art Deco Pueblo revival style. So it's kind of unique. Mm -hmm. It combined that Art Deco look that was so popular in the 1920s with Adobe building styles as well. Oresti did this because he wanted to honor the Native American people who had accepted him, this Italian-American man, as one of their own. So he adopted some styles from Aztec, Navajo, and Pueblo architecture. Very cool. Its name, Kimo, which means mountain lion, was chosen as part of a contest with a $50 prize sponsored by the Albuquerque Journal. The Kimo Theater saw its first visitors on September 19, 1927, when it had this crazy big program featuring a comedy film called Painting the Town a performance on the Wurlitzer Theater organ, which was used for silent films at the time, which had cost $18,000 to install. And, to keep with the theme here, Native American dancers and singers were also performing. I just can't imagine $18,000 to install a fucking organ. I know, especially in the 1920s. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately for Oresti, he wouldn't be around very long to enjoy this beautiful theater he created because he died in March of 1928 Mm. at the age of 67 and was buried in Mount Calvary Cemetery. In the 1960s, a lot of the building was damaged in a fire, which led to a few issues, obviously, about what state this place was in. And by the 1970s, it fell into disrepair and was going to be torn down. But 
1977, it was saved by a, by the city, who ended up purchasing it and restoring it, even bringing back a replica of the original neon sign that had been removed back in the 50s. Wow. According to legend, however, the fire in the 60s wasn't the first tragedy to befall this place. In 1951, the water heater exploded and killed a six-year-old boy by the name of Bobby Darnell. They say his spirit haunts the theater to this day, and it's a pretty standard haunted theater story, to be honest. He's said to like donuts, and they are usually given to him before performances, so he won't cause mischief and ruin the shows. The story goes that during a performance of A Christmas Carol in 1974, Security made them take the donuts away they had, that they had placed out for him, which they would hang on the water pipes, and the donuts would be gone the next morning and have bites taken out of them. And Bobby started messing with the performers and sets because they took those donuts away, <laughs> causing a disastrous performance. Nobody comes between Bobby and his donuts. Exactly. However, this story should be taken with a grain of salt or maybe a nice donut according to an investigator and skeptic, Benjamin Radford, who says he found out the performance in question actually happened in 1986 and there was nothing unusual about the performance and the story is all bullshit. Well then. He also, yeah. He also said Bobby's family is upset by the stories being told and they feel exploited. Mm. Now, I'm not saying either way with the legend because I don't know. I've never been there. But... How would you know it actually took place in 1986 when I'm sure this theater has done a Christmas carol a hundred times over and to be certain it was this date rather than, you know, 74 based on the fact that nothing happened <laughs> seems a little weird to me. Yeah, that is kind of weird. It's a super popular play to do around Christmas time. So how would you know for sure? Regardless of whether or not this ghost story is real, there has been more than one sighting of ghostly activity. People also say that they see the figure of a woman in a bonnet. She's usually just minding her own business and walking around the place. Bobby, however, is said to be the more common spirit who can be seen playing and wearing a striped shirt and blue jeans. Bobby is said to play pranks on staff and guests both. Plus, of course, mess with sound, lighting, or trip the actors if he isn't given his donuts. <laughs> what a little scamp. Exactly. My sources for that portion of my story were Wikipedia, findagrave.com, cabq.gov, and legendsofamerica.com. What do you think of the theater, Nicole? I think it's really cool. Like when you were describing the like Art Deco Pueblo style, I could picture it in my head. I just like imagine like all those like very like early California style Pueblo mm -hmm. movie theaters. So I bet it's a very beautiful place to catch a show. And oh, I, it's really cool looking. I am a little surprised that the founder hasn't, like, come back from Calgary's cemetery to uh, check out the digs. Yeah, right? You would think he would be a spirit that you'd probably see on site. Exactly, because he hardly got to experience his own theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I am switching things up a bit. I was going to do this one last, but I think I like my middle one better. So I'm going to do this one second. So this stop for this week is going to be the Botker Mansion. The Botker Mansion, like most things in Old Town, hence the name, has a long history. 
But what stands today is actually not the original house that was on that property. <laughs> the original structure was owned by the owner of the Sunnyside Tavern, Tom Post, and after he passed, one of his employees, Charles Bacher, married Tom's daughter and moved into the house, demolished it in 1909, and began building the Bacher Mansion in 1912. The original house had been there from the 1700s and was an adobe style. Charles was born in New York City, but was from New Jersey. He moved to New Mexico in 1893. The Bacher Mansion was done in what's called the American Foursquare style, which is something I had never heard of. Have you heard of it, Nicole? I don't think so. Uh, it's just made me think of like the kids game that we used to play on the playground, Foursquare. That's all I thought of. <laughs> Um, the design is actually way more common than you'd think, and you've definitely seen a ton of these houses before in your lifetime. It means the house is rectangular and had a front porch that runs the length of the front of the house. So basically most of the houses you see in America and arguably the easiest house to make in The Sims. <laughs> gotcha. His plan for the house was for it to have all modern features. So for the time, that meant a dumbwaiter, gas lighting, pressed tin ceilings, and speaking tubes connecting the rooms. Interesting. So like the, the late 19th century version of an intercom. Exactly, where you're just talking through some tubes. It's pretty <laughs> much Dixie Cups on a string, but it works. High tech. Yeah, exactly. The house was heated by coal. And there was a fireplace in the living room, which was, I believe, the only fireplace in the house. The building was called the Pride of Old Town at the time. Hmm. An additional fun fact about Charles is that he owned one of the first cars in Albuquerque. He's a real fancy man. He is. I mean, talking tubes and a car. <laughs> wow. This guy's got it all. He died in 1914, so he didn't even get to live in this house for very long. This seems to be a theme. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but uh, his wife, Michaela, or no, Miguela, sorry, I read that wrong, needed some extra income not after long. And she started taking in boarders. Okay. This is where things get a little interesting because in the 40s, Machine Gun Kelly and his gang began hiding out here. What? Yes. Oh, and, and for the Gen Zers, I'm not talking about the, the musical artist Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. We to, yeah, we need to clarify these things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Machine Gun Kelly and his gang were hiding here from the law. They had dyed their hair and were trying to keep a low profile since they were on the most wanted list. The owners thought it was a little strange that they never left and would always send one of the neighborhood boys out to grab them food. <laughs> they grew suspicious of Machine Gun Kelly and his gang and called the cops, but the gang overheard and managed to escape. They were, however, caught shortly after this. I found that to be, like, super interesting. Yeah, it's surprising that they didn't like try to harm the people who like contacted the police yeah i think they're too you know concerned with saving their own asses yeah to just do anything just trying to get get away 
Exactly. They should have gotten their own damn burgers. <laughs> Many famous people have stayed here, including Elvis Presley. And uh, Frank Sinatra even performed here at a wedding. Huh. In the 1970s, the place became vacant after a dispute about inheritance, and eventually it was sold outside of the family. It is on the National Register of Historic Places and is actually the only place for lodging in the Old Town District, according to their website, hmm. as since 1989, it has been a bed and breakfast. That would be a really cool bed and breakfast to stay in. Oh, hell yeah. Before that, it had been an art gallery, a restaurant, and beauty parlor, among other things. It's quite a diverse life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's done it all. It's a quadruple threat of a building. <laughs> so versatile. Exactly. It's also located on Route 66, which is really cool. And the building is mostly in its original state. The one major change is that the porch is now enclosed. Okay. Which, I mean, I don't mind. I like enclosed porches. They're always nice. It does have seven rooms with varying amenities. But there was this one room I saw that made me giggle. Most of them had only one bed. But this room, the Erna Ferguson room, has two twin, yes, I said twin, beds, which face each other. And it appears in the picture that this room is like the size of a hallway. Wait, wait. The beds face each other? Yes. Like, um, so the one bed, the head is against the wall. And then the foot of the bed is against the foot of the next bed, and the head of that bed is against the other wall. <laughs> that sounds so uncomfortable. And, like, awkward. Yes. Let's not get that yes. room. Let's, no. And No. We'll upgrade. And, like, it gets weirder. Like, I'm hoping that it's bigger in person, but I doubt it. Um, it does have a 24-inch wall-mounted TV, but only one has a view of it. Only one of those beds. <laughs> And it didn't look like there was any seating. There was like a little table, and I don't think there was any seating. <laughs> I take back what I said about the building being versatile. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the other rooms are beautiful, and there's, you know, there's lots of good things about the other rooms. This is like the I'm on a budget, and I, I really, really like my friend, so I can stare at them while they sleep. I don't know. I don't know. Uh. It's kind of cool because it looks like it may have been some sort of like sunroom since there are windows everywhere, but it's just, it's very small. Okay. The website says it is, quote, cozy. And in terms to make things sound better, that usually means small. It does sound cozy. Very, very cozy and very, very awkward. As for the hauntings, there are a few. One website said that there are four ghosts here one of which being none other than Charles Bacher himself watching over his property. Which, see, this guy came back, Nicole. Okay. So. The other two are both women, one being younger, but still grown, and the other being older, more like a ghost granny, if you will. A ghost Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Hello! Hello! <laughs> the one that disturbs me, however is this super perv who likes to climb into bed with female guests. Uh, no. Yeah, time's up, ghost. <laughs> He's referred to as the lover, Gross. but I prefer to call him the sexual predator. Gross. Yeah, disgusting. 
I'm also thinking that one of the female ghosts would probably have to be Magella, since that would make the most sense, and people have reported hearing both female ghosts talking to each other, so I don't know who the other one is. Interesting. Other reports have been disembodied voices, cold spots, and objects moving on their own. I was sad because when looking at this story so I could cover it, I saw a list of, like, you know, each place was highlighted. Mm-hmm. So I assumed I was looking at this one when I read about a place that had ghostly, odorless smoke filling the room and then disappearing and a voice calling out a girl's name, but no one was there when people go to look for whoever it was. But that turned out to be a nearby place called La Placita Restaurant. And they didn't highlight that name like they did with every other one on the list. But I had already written a story for this one. So I was stuck. False advertising, I tell you. False advertising. <laughs> well, I'm still... So what do you think of this place? Would you stay here? Yes. And I'm still delighted by your story. Uh, ghostly smoke notwithstanding. Oh. Uh, I'm down to stay at this place. One, it sounds beautiful. And then it two, is. you're right in the heart of Old Town, which is kind of awesome. Exactly. As long as we don't stay in that cozy room where we have to we, we ruin our friendships over who gets to watch the Travel Channel, <laughs> I'm be fine. Because I mean, like, you can't even sit comfortably with two people on like a twin bed, so it's not like we could like sit next to each other and watch the TV. <laughs> You're like, oh, they like, have HBO. No. I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. Let me narrate what's going on. Exactly. Yes. One can just pretend that they're like in, you know, like the time before television and are listening to the radio. <laughs> so my sources for that story were Wikipedia, Botker.com, OnlyInYourState.com, HauntedJourneys.com, TravelChannel.com, and HauntedPlaces.org. Now, what the hell was the name of that cozy little room again? I wanted to call it the Irma Gerd room. Oh, yeah, it did have an interesting name. But it's Erna, Erna. Ferguson. And Ferguson is spelled like, I mean, it's obviously like Scandinavian, but it's spelled like F-U-R-G-U-S-S-O-N. That explains why Erna, Erna is kind of an interesting name. Erna is a weird name, yeah. But it's not spelled like Fergie Ferg, I mean, love you long time. No, it's not spelled like Fergie Ferg. So. All right. I guess that's okay. It's all right as long as we don't have to hear her sing the national anthem ever again. (laughs) Remind me to send you the uh, the book that someone wrote about her in singing the national anthem. Oh no! There's a wait a book written about her singing the national anthem. What? I'll I'll just I'll send it to you. Don't worry. All questions will okay. be answered. I yeah I need to know about this. <laughs> so, um, my last stop that I have to take you guys on is the High Noon Restaurant and Saloon. Okay. I figured, you know, we'd, uh, you know, get a little dinner, uh, you know, and, you know, go see a play. And then we can go back to the hotel and stare at each other awkwardly in our twin beds that face (laughs) each other while you narrate what's happening on TV for me. So the building in which the High Noon Restaurant and Saloon resides on San Felipe Street is actually one of Old Town's original structures and dates all the way back to 1785. Wow. It's actually an old adobe-style building and was a house in its conception. Inside, you will have to duck if you are over six foot tall because the foyer is quite small. 
The rooms inside vary greatly and all represent a different group of peoples of New Mexico. The Santo Room represents the Mexican heritage, while the Gallery Room is more to represent the Anglo influences. And then there's the Kiva Room, which represents the Native American influences. There's definitely a lot of culture here, and I love how they have so much representation of all these different groups of people. I think it's really cool. The food here looks great with a lot of Mexican offerings, among others. But from what I hear, the real star of the show has been their margaritas. Oh, I am there for some good Ritas. Exactly. They have over 30 tequila options, and everyone seems to rave about these margaritas. I mean, I don't know that I need 30 tequila options because I'm not like a big tequila snob. But just, you know what, I'll have 30 margaritas. We'll try each different kind. There you go. If it takes all night, I don't care. I love working when it comes to margaritas. Um, (laughs) So two of the food offerings I saw that looked delicious to me were an apple and cranberry salad with balsamic. And you know I love my balsamic Mm -hmm. with like some baby greens. There was also some Kobe beef sliders with cheddar cheese and chipotle ketchup that looked pretty good. Okay. Although I'm not the biggest ketchup fan, making it spicy sounds like a good idea to me. Why not? Yeah, I'm into that. It'll help give us a good base for all those margaritas. Exactly. Remember, we're each drinking 30, so we need to have something in our stomach. (laughs) Um, And then we're not leaving the hotel the next day. That hotel room won't be awkward for sure after 30 margaritas. (laughs) I hope we don't have to share a bathroom because we're going to be throwing up a lot. (laughs) Uh. Their nachos also won third place in 2013 when Albuquerque the magazine sampled all the nachos in the city. And being number three in an entire city isn't bad at all. No, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and I love me some nachos, so I am there. This place also has a long history, like I mentioned, and legend has it that this building was once a gambling den and brothel. Now, that might just be legend, but who knows? I do know for a fact that it was a retail store at one time and also a Spanish furniture maker. Okay. I'm not quite as interesting as a gambling den and brothel, but we'll take what we can get. And although this place is steeped in legend, the ghosts are certainly real enough for the staff and visitors alike. And now that I just hit my hand on the table, let me tell you about those. Many have seen a woman in white in the Santo Room. She is said to be a young-looking woman with dark hair wearing a white dress who, from all accounts, just seems to, like, walk around and accidentally scare the daylights out of people. I mean, that description kind of makes me think of Samara from The Ring, so I don't know that I like this woman very much to start off with, but... Like, girl, you creepy. Yep, get back in that TV. I initially thought she was more like residual energy than anything else until I dug a little deeper and saw reports of people having been pushed by her. Oh. Yeah. I also heard that she does not like women very much. So, uh, yeah, that's really not great. And she will lock people in the bathroom. So one worker said that he or she not just witnessed her, but had also seen orbs, a black cat. That likes to rub against people, which is adorable, I think, anyway. Mm -hmm. 
some shadowy figures in the bar area. And says some spots in the restaurant feel like, quote, walking through honey. That's weird. Yeah, like, that's trippy. The water in the bathroom has been said to turn on and off of its own accord. And stall doors slam by themselves. I'm pretty sure that's the the black-haired chick Mm -hmm. or the dark-haired chick. Because, you know, she seems to love the bathrooms. And we'll be spending a lot of time in there puking our guts out from those margaritas. (laughs) Or just visiting the bathroom a lot. Because I don't know about you, but my bladder is only so large. Uh, Yeah, exactly. If I'm in there too long, Eden, just know I've been locked into a stall by a ghost. (laughs) I will help you out as long as I'm not also locked in a stall. (laughs) Staff have recorded glasses sliding across the bar at night and even floating in the air weird yeah one waiter was closing up one night and saw a very heavy wooden wagon wheel fly onto a table from the wall where it had been leaning uh that's not fun in games that could be like very deadly (laughs) yes you know she's a little bit dangerous uh (laughs) Now, I wasn't able to watch the episode, but High Noon was featured on your favorite show to watch on vacation, Nicole, The Dead Files. Yes! So according to them, someone was murdered here, but that's all I could find without actually buying the episode. I'm guessing that it was the woman in white since she seems kind of angry. Yeah, and given the history of the building, it's like, what are the chances that someone didn't get murdered there exactly i was however able to track down a clip from travelchannel.com and i did hear a story on there from a man who said he was at the restaurant and he heard this weird jingling coming from somewhere and it stopped right in front of him he said he felt like something was staring at him less than an inch away from his face uh that's creepy yeah, and he thinks the jingling may have been spurs. Like a He says cowboy? that the staring feeling continued for five or six seconds, and then after this, the jingling came back, and the invisible entity walked away. So, like, a jingling like cowboy spurs? Yes. Okay. And, I mean, the psychic lady, because the, the guy was, like, interviewing that guy, and then the psychic lady was, like, outside... Like saying stuff about like some cowboy as the interview was going on. So interesting. There are probably more stories out there, but this was what I could find for the High Noon Restaurant and Saloon. What do you think, Nicole? Want to eat some award winning nachos and get locked in a bathroom? I mean, only if the Mars keep flowing. Yeah, right. Well, they will. They will. And they will also slide across that table without anyone doing anything and possibly float in the air. So that's what I call service. Exactly. Ghostly service with a smile, or, I mean, can you really tell if they're smiling if they're invisible? A smile Uh, or a scream, it's all the same to me. It's right. They smile with their essence. (laughs) My sources for my final story were TravelChannel.com, since they apparently have every ghost show imaginable. Mm -hmm. Um, NMGastronomy.com Visit albuquerque.org, onlyinyourstate.com, highnoonrestaurant.com, abjjournal.com, and hauntedplaces.org. 
Well, thank you for taking me on a curated tour of Albuquerque's haunted old town. Absolutely. And there is one thing that I do want to add, and that is that the chemo theater, I'm not actually sure if it's in old town or just real close. Mm. The internet was kind of like wishy-washy about that. So, you know, any natives that might be offended that I thought it was an old town, if it's not, I am sorry. But I'm going to go there anyway. <laughs> I guess that brings us to the end of the episode for this go around. That it does. If you like the stories that you heard or you'd like to suggest your own stories, you can do that in a number of ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can find us on social media. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassy for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep on, creeping on. Creepin on.